So most of you listening to this podcast know that the HBO series Winning Time is based upon a book I wrote. And while the whole experience has been dreamy, I become very much aware of a human phenomenon that sort of eluded me, which is this. When things are going well, like really well, it's staggering how many people want to take a shit on you. I'm being serious. In my life, I've received my fair share of negative book reviews, and that's totally fine. It comes with the turf. But I'm honestly amazed by the number of folks who will meet me and say, yeah, don't really love the show, or why'd they cast that guy? Or I hope you're getting paid well, because it kind of sucks. I'm not trying to be a whiner, really. It's just so bizarre, because why would you want to hurt someone's feelings? Why would you want to tell someone his work blows? Just so you can? Just because the words cross your mind? And I'm not mad. I'm really not. The show has gotten great reviews. It's been picked up for another season. I'm getting paid. But I will always remember this ride. And I'll always remember to either lavish praise or just say nothing at all. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is John McLean, the recently retired journalist who covered the NFL for the Houston Chronicle for 45 years. This is episode number 256. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, John, this is your official retirement party. Even though, you know what? I'm going to call bullshit on you. You're not really retiring. Like, you're retiring, but it's not like you're going off to fish in Florida. You're still a journalist. You're still going to contribute. You're still going to host your show. So it's like quite, you get the presents, but you don't have to go off into the sunset. Is that kind of what this is? Is this a, is this a trick to get a lot of presents? Is that what you're doing here? <laughs> That's what it was. I got some too, Jeff. I, I retired from the Chronicle. It was my three months into my 47th year, a 51st year as a sports writer. I was hired in uh, June of 1972 by the Waco Tribune Herald going into my uh, junior year at Baylor. And, uh, and so I still do 10 weekly talk shows in six cities, including four in Houston on the Texans flagship. So I love talking about sports. Always have. First time I got put on uh, the radio was in 1976 when I came to the Chronicle to cover the original Houston Arrows with Gordy, Marty, and Mark Howe. And I always told people that learning hockey from Gordy Howe is like learning the Bible from Jesus. And for a kid at 24 years old, had only been on one plane in his life going from Waco, Texas to Odessa, Texas, and immediately go across two countries. It was mind boggling to me, open up a whole different world, but being able to watch Gordy Howe on and off the ice on planes, I, I just, couldn't soak up enough from him and all the other players. And that's why I've always been a hockey fan. But you talk about, as my wife calls me, a hayseed coming from Waco and going all over the country and Canada. And, man, I was, I was a deer in the, caught in the headlights. That's awesome. When I'm interested, does getting older as a sports writer and covering sports as obviously the players stay the same age, but we get older, does it make you feel old or young? Jeff, what I'm going to miss most are game days. I don't miss the way the game has become. I always used to like when I covered the Oilers, you could go in the dressing room, stay as long as you wanted. If the players and coaches didn't want to talk to you, they just tell you or walk away. So you got to develop relationships with them. Like I, I wasn't friends with them when I covered them, but now I'm friends with a lot of them. And because uh, we see each other a lot at benefits and, and lunches and dinners in Houston and the Texans, Today, if you try to get in a dressing room and spend uh, time chatting with players, you'll almost get tasered. I used to go in Bum Phillips, the coach's office, and watch film. I could go in the, the GM or the personnel director's office and watch film. Today, you know, they'd have security all over you. That's the part I miss is developing the relationships. And the last two years, of course, we couldn't get in the dressing room because of the pandemic. Now, next season, they say they're going to open up the dressing rooms again. I'm sure the players are going to love that. Yeah. And uh, But even then – you can't just go up and BS with a player and talk to him about his family, his school, his friends, you know, his game. 
I used to like to do that, and I I miss I miss the one-on-one interaction with people that you have during the week, and I miss the games. That was the most exciting thing. And uh, but I just I don't want to call it drudgery because what I did, you know, I didn't work today since I mowed yards in Waco, Texas after high school. You know, I haven't worked, and what we do is not work. And I've never looked at it like that. But uh, I just kind of wanted a change, and I can get that from talk shows. I'm going to do a little freelance work for the Chronicle around the draft because they haven't had time to replace me. And if some others pops up, I'll do it. But I still want to stay on top of everything. When do you feel like the the ability to forge relationships with players started to change? Let's see. I go back. I was president of Pro Football Writers of America, and I think it was Bill Parcells who used to let the media watch practice and talk to assistant coaches. I think Bill was the first to do that. And as a president of Pro Football Writers, I tried to talk him and then other coaches that followed suit into why they did that because somehow – uh, Vince Lombardi and Don Shula and Bill Walsh and Tom Landry and Chuck Knoll had managed to build dynasties with the media watching practice, talking to players and talking to coaches. And I never really got an answer from them. I'll never forget, Jeff, when Bill Belichick was at uh, the Browns and they got in the playoffs once. And it was a big story that he decided in the playoffs he wasn't going to let the media watch practice for the first time. And they're like everybody's flabbergasted. Why not? And Jack Pardee was the coach of the uh, the Oilers. And I asked him one day, I said, hey, have you ever thought about keeping us from watching practice in the playoffs like the Cleveland coach? He said, I played 15 years. This is the third team I've been a head coach for. And I have never seen anyone in the media able to affect the outcome of a game. And if I do, then you guys won't be watching practice. And Jeff, I've told that story to so many head coaches through the years, and they don't really have a comment because there is no comment. I've asked them, tell me one media person that's affected the outcome of a game. And of course, they never can. But that's how it changed. I feel bad for the younger media today that never had those opportunities to interact with the people they covered. I have a million questions for you. So I have a, I have a story in front of me here. From December 29th, 1980, you did not write. It was actually written by John Clayton. Pastorini crashes again. And it's about former Oilers quarterback. He was in with the Raiders, Dan Pastorini. And uh, it says, uh, on Saturday night, Pastorini crashed. He had another altercation outside a hotel bar with Houston Post football writer Dale Robertson. And 30 minutes later, crashed his car into an elm tree. The Raiders quarterback was treated at a local hospital for facial cuts and released. And later it says, entering with a drink in his hand. This is a hotel bar. Pastorini followed Robertson into a lobby and shouted, Dale, you're still a fuck. Merry Christmas, Robertson replied. What'd you say, Pastorini asked? Merry Christmas, Robertson replied. Pastorini then asked Robertson if he was going to write about this. I asked him if he was talking about the game or the fact he wasn't playing, Robertson explained. So I said both. Hearing that, Pastorini moved toward Robertson and was stopped by Houston Chronicle sports writer John McLean. McLean was shoved in the chest and warned by Pastorini not to intervene. Number one, what were you going to do to Dan Pastoriti? Well, first of all, that story is not exactly accurate. Uh, it were three of us. We went to the team hotel to go to the bar to see if anybody was there. Kenny Burrow, their wide receiver, was injured, and he was in the bar, and we went up to talk to him. And Pastorini, who was playing with the Raiders but was not active, he was there. And so he and Dale had had the run-in before the AFC Championship game the year before when uh, John Clayton was also involved, John Clayton was at the Oilers facility and he was among a group of reporters talking to Bum Phillips and Bum Phillips was saying one of the reasons he liked coaching that team is because the media and the players were able to coexist and get along. And all of a sudden through the double doors comes Dale Robertson with Dan Pastorini on top of him. And Bum looks at the reporters and goes till now. And, uh, it was quickly broken up. So that uh, Dan was traded for Kenny Stabler before the 1980 season. And this was before the wild card game at the end of the 1980 season. And what actually happened is Dale and me and Ray Buck from the Houston Post, we went down a hallway, went out into the parking lot to our car, and Dan came running out and he grabbed Dale by one arm and I was pulling Dale by the other arm and Dale's yelling, please don't rip my new leather coat. 
And uh, we got away and went in the car and went back to the hotel. And then Dan had a wreck that night. Dan, who quit drinking 15 years ago, now is a friend of mine, just did an event with him last week and have another one coming up next month. Wow. You mentioned him. What was Bum Phillips? I, I once went uh, horseback riding with Bum Phillips in Goliad, Texas for a story. <laughs> it was one of the most lovely days of my, my life, him and his wife. Um, he just seems like an absolute joy to cover. What was he like to cover? Well, first of all, Bum moved to Goliad, which is south of San Antonio, as you know, where Santa Ana marshaled his troops to uh, take down the Alamo. And Bum had to leave town because he couldn't go anywhere in Houston without people coming up wanting pictures, autograph, couldn't go to couldn't go to lunch, dinner. And they lived uh, just on the edge of town. Everybody always wanted something for Bum. And he was getting older and he loved horses. And Debbie was a great horse woman who rode uh cutting horses. So they moved on that ranch. And a lot of people went down there to see him, including me. I went down there and did a story one time and it was so much more peaceful. And then when he had something he wanted to come back to Houston to, Debbie would drive him in and they would spend the night. But covering Bum, I'll give you a story. The first time I was doing a story on Bum was 1977 training camp. They were up at Stephen F. Austin in East Texas. Camps were awful back then. Players today wouldn't even consider going to some of the places they had training camp in their facilities in the cities. So I get there night before and the next day they have their first practice. And Dale Robertson is one of my best friends. Uh, he was showing me the ropes. He was a competition at the Houston Post. And Bum had a big old long room. It was a dump. It didn't have air conditioning. Just no, not central. There's no cooler in the corner. And so everybody lines up around this long table. And I noticed Dale and the media from Houston at one end, it's opposite the bums end. And so I figured, hey, I'm the newbie. I'm going to sit down here by bum. I'll get to ask more questions. So I sat down there and I noticed them smirking and, and talking behind my back. So Bum comes in after practice. He has an old cooler with Budweiser. He gets a Budweiser for all of us. We pop the tops, and I'm still wondering, why is everybody that opposite end? So Bum sits in his chair on the end of the table with me right next to him. He pushes that chair back, and he reaches down and does something, and I don't know what he's doing. And then he raises up and puts his dirty, stinky feet on the desk. He's taken off his shoes and socks, and I'm right there in my God, I took a deep breath and I looked back at Dale and them and they were laughing their asses off. So the next practice, I was down there with them. So that was the first time I met Bum and he was uh, he was fun to cover because he, he was careful about what the people did off the field as long as you played, as long as you showed up at practice and you did your job. And they had some wild and crazy people back then, and they had a lot of issues. But his motto was, and I, I asked him once, he would bring in Willie Nelson to play the guitar at training camp in 1980 around the lower floor of the dorm and they'd moved to San Angelo, Texas, out in West Texas. And he would, he would stop practice and have a pizza and ice cream. And I asked him, and he always made sure to room players, different positions. And he wanted black and white players to room together. And I asked him one time, why do you go to all that trouble? And he said, because I believe that when times are tough, subconsciously, you may let down your friends, but if it's your family, you're going to find a way to get your job done. And that's one reason, Jeff, they were able to pull some upsets. And they did have a lot of talent. During the Love You Blue era with Pump Phillips, Dan Pastrine, Earl Campbell, it was their misfortune not to just be in the AFC with the Steelers, but to be in the same AFC Central with the Steelers. And they had some knockdown, drag out battles. And Franco Harris told me at the Hall of Fame one year, he said, everybody thought the Raiders was the toughest rival we had with most physical games. He said, no, the most physical games were the Oilers because we had to do it twice a year. And there was a mutual respect. One time after they lost one of those championship games, 1978 at Three Rivers, fans stole Bum's hat. And some Steelers ran and caught him and brought it back to him. The next year they lost, fans stole Bum's hat. They couldn't get it. 
So Baum said he got over 200 cowboy hats sent to their offices by Steeler fans that offseason. And he said he saw a couple he liked and he donated the rest of them. So there was a mutual respect. One year during the Love You Blue era, Steelers needed the Oilers to beat the Bengals in the last game in the Astrodome. Bengals were favored. Bengals win, they win the division. And the Oilers beat them. And during that offseason, the Steelers sent every person in the organization a really nice monogram briefcase made out of the cover of footballs or made out of the Oilers were so proud of those briefcases. When you're when you're covering a team uh, for that long, like you cover the Oilers and you're in the press box and it's during a game and they're playing, we'll say, Pittsburgh or the Raiders or whoever. Do you care whether the Oilers win? Uh, I'll tell you, we're supposed to be uh uh, impartial. It's so much more fun when your team wins. There's more interest, more calls on the talk shows. Now you get more hits on the internet because we can keep up with clicks. When the Texans win, you get a better response than when they lose. And I don't care if you're around guys a lot, covering them every day, even though you have run-ins. I had run-ins with players and coaches, but we tried to have a mutual respect and I would always listen to them because back then they'd have the post and the hit Chronicle sports section right there. They go to their locker, read it. And if they didn't like something you wrote, they would let you know. But yes, I always wanted the teams I covered to win. I almost would go out of my way to be negative toward them. One time they beat the Dolphins in the first game of the season. Dolphins were coming off Super Bowl loss. My sports editor calls me in and says, you've been covering too many bad teams. You wrote this like they lost and they won, and you should try to be a little more positive because that's what the readers want after they beat the defending AFC champion. And I never thought about that, but I always tried to be fair, and if people didn't like it, that wasn't my problem. And uh, since I've retired, I've had a lot of people tell me that they appreciated my fairness. I remember when um, I was a kid. I don't want to date you, but I was a kid in 1984. It's all right. I'm 70 years old. Yeah, I'm 50. Well, almost 50. So 1984, I'm a diehard football fan. The only jersey I own is an Earl Campbell jersey that my parents found for five bucks. It's the only sports jersey I own as a kid. And in 1984, he's traded to the New Orleans Saints. And it tore my heart out of my body. And I was wondering, like, covering that team, covering the sort of decline of the Love Me Blue era, and then cutting that head off the chicken, the, the trading of Earl Campbell. When you're a writer, are you emotionally invested in this? Are you saddened by this seeing a icon sort of slip or is it just business to you? I knew when players are traded, if it's somebody you like and respect, of course, it's going to be a tougher. Of course, fans went nuts, but we knew it was happening. I'm going to tell you something, Jeff, I've written and broadcast for years, but people nationally don't know it because I've seen so many stories about Earl and things on the NFL Network and ESPN, and none of them checked us out. Uh, the reason the general manager, Lad Erzig, in the 82 draft, took Mike Munchak, guard first round, Bruce Matthews, guard first round the next year, Dean Steinkuller, a guard first round the next year, and they moved him around. But he wanted to build a great offensive line for Earl Campbell in 83. 82 was a strike year. 83, Earl rushed for over 1,300 yards. And in that offseason, they traded wide receiver Mike Renfro to Cowboys for receiver Butch Johnson. Butch was famous for the California Quake end zone dance in which he would do the splits. So in training camp, and I was there watching this, this is another thing we used to could do. Now they'd shoot us before they even consider it. I could go up in the coach's tower, I could go up in a videographer and a photographer's tower and watch from that vantage point, which I like to do. In practice, Butch Johnson caught a, a pass, and he could have stopped. He didn't have to go to the end zone, but he did. And he did the California Quake. Later, Earl gets into the secondary. He didn't have to go the distance. He did. He tried to do the California Quake. He hurt his knee. He had to be helped off. From that point on, he was never the same. And since he retired, they found out he had stenosis, the narrowing of the spinal canal, where if he had taken a wrong hit, he took a million hard hits, he'd have been paralyzed. And as it is now, he needs a wheelchair and a walker to get around, but he's getting better. 
And so they held on to Earl and didn't play him much because they knew Bum, who was with the Saints, wanted him. So at the trading deadline, they traded Earl to the Saints for number one pick. They used on cornerback Richard Johnson, who never panned out. He's in the wrong system. And that's what happened to the end of Earl's career. And when he retired, people thought, oh, man, they used him up. No, they didn't use him up. He hurt his knee trying to do the California quake in training camp. And uh, so when he was traded at that time, he wasn't doing anything. And we've been writing about it and speculating about it because it was no secret. Bum thought he was the missing link to what the Saints needed. And and Earl couldn't recapture the magic because he was physically unable. And Bum was able unable to do it in New Orleans where they had such high expectations. John Meekham Jr. hired him the moment he was fired on what's still known here as New Year's Eve massacre on December 31st, 1980. But uh, a lot of fans were devastated. Earl was traded right now. Earl lives in Austin. He's always had a job working at the University of Texas. And when he comes back here for autograph shows, it doesn't matter who's there. Nolan Ryan, Kim Olajuwon, A.J. Foyt, Elvin Hayes, it doesn't matter. Earl's line is still the longest. That's amazing. My first job out of college, I was a writer for the Nashville Tennessean, and this was in 1996, and uh, well, I started in 94. So I was there when Nashville was yanking the Oilers away from Houston, and you were obviously in Houston when the Oilers were yanked away from, from your city. When that is happening, when that finally happens, and you are a football writer, are you thinking, shit, I'm going to need a new job in a different city? It's interesting you said that because I was up there for the first two weeks at training camp in 1997 because it was such a huge story. And uh, we knew this was going to happen for a couple of years. Bud Adams was on the finance committee of the NFL. And when he saw the deals some of these other teams getting and being offered by their cities and the counties, he had no control over the Astrodome. It was owned by the county, run by the Astros. The Astros, it was a terrible stadium. And so he asked for $180 million in public money. He would put in the rest and build about a $500 million stadium downtown. And everybody's like, downtown? Who wants to go downtown? And so the mayor, city council, everybody, the media turned their back on Bud because Bud had built up so much ill will through the years. And it, trying to get a new stadium, when you go from 12 and 4 to 2 and 14, you talk about bad timing. You know, the Bills are fortunate. They're really good right now, so there's not too much of a squawk over the $600 million they're getting from the government. But people just turn it back on Bud. And uh, Baltimore was interested. He had his president, that I mean, vice president, Mike McClure, find out how long it took to fly a charter, his plane, not charter, his jet, from Houston to Baltimore. Then uh, Nashville was interested. He said, how long does it take? Well, of course, about half the time. So he entered into an exclusive negotiating period with Nashville. Phil Bredesen was behind that. He didn't know whether a ball had air or feathers, but he knew what the NFL could do for Nashville and the state of Tennessee. And uh, he did a great job of getting them the stadium and the land for a practice facility uh, that both opened in 1999. And so here people, people saw, uh, there was a fan rally on a fan website. Nobody paid any attention to it. About 20 people showed up and the media locally went down there and used it as an example. How many people cared about the Oilers? And it was such a misrepresentation, but it went all over the country. And I remember, I think it was the last crowd, Jeff, there was 15,000 at the Astrodome. And uh, we thought they were gone in 95. They made them stay another season. They were putting on days, the Astros, the, the Oilers were playing. They would put at other venues on site, like a gym, GEM convention, a lowriders convention. You know, about 20,000 fans are trying to park and get between the lowriders that are going around the Astrodome. It was just, it was such a cluster, you know what. But that last game, Everybody went to the dressing room but me from the Chronicle. And I went to the exit out of the stadium where I knew Bud's limo would go out. And when he came out, there's probably about 50 fans that knew that. 
Bud was in the back with his wife, Nancy, and the fans were throwing rocks and beer and dirt and jumping on the hood and the trunk, screaming the worst possible things. And then they they left and then moved to Nashville. He never wanted to move. And it's funny because Nashville's become my home away from home. I'm on my 26th year of doing weekly radio in Nashville. I host charity events up there. And uh, so I still always hated that the Oilers left, but they didn't get pulled away. They got pushed away. And people ask me during the Deshaun Watson ordeal, God, this is the worst. This is the worst story in Houston history. And they would ask me, I'd say, no, losing your team over a two year period. That was the worst story in Houston history, especially when I never thought we'd get another team because Houston was uh, pushed way to the back burner while the NFL did the exclusive negotiating period with L.A. and wanted L.A. and sent Roger Goodell to live in L.A. and hang out with Tom Cruise and a bunch of other famous people while they tried to get the certain owner a stadium and uh, money for the stadium and the practice facility. And Bob McNair had all that ready to go in Houston. Ultimately, that's why Houston got the team. Does Houston love the Texans the way they love the Oilers? No. And uh, I told Bob McNair one time, the greatest victory in Oilers history was the 79 divisional playoff game at San Diego. Air Coriel loaded with Hall of Famers, Don Coriel, the coach, against an Oilers team that didn't have quarterback Dan Pastorini, running back Earl Campbell, or the best receiver, Kenny Burrow. And so they were like 18-point underdogs. And Vernon Perry, strong safety, intercepted four passes, still a playoff record. And they figured out from studying Dan Fouts that if his right foot was twisted a little bit to the right when he was taking a snap, he was going to he was going to backpedal for a pass. And inside linebacker Greg Bingham would yell, uh, "Air Force, Air Force." And then if he didn't put his foot out there and it was straight, they knew it was going to be a run and they would scream army, army. And that was the greatest victory in Houston football history. Now the Oilers won the first two AFL championships over Sid Gilman's chargers, but that was the AFL. So I told Bob McNair, you're going to have to go to win a game championship game to go to the Super Bowl before you win a game that was more important or bigger than that victory over the Chargers. And I think until the Texans get to a Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl, you're not going to have the passionate love affair that you had with the Oilers. And it was never bigger than it was during that Love You Blue era with Bob Phillips and Earl Campbell. As an urban cowboy, you know, they filmed Urban Cowboy here at Gillies and that – came out. Jeff, at the time, everybody wore cowboy hats with big old feather bands and fancy cowboy boots. And and it was it was quite a time. They were winning. It was exciting. The Astros were winning. And the Rockets, one of the few times all three of our teams were really good. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I am so frustrated by my dog, Poppy. Why? She refuses to wear this Doug Flutie jersey I bought her at RoyalRetros.com. I don't understand. Have you tried explaining it to her? I mean, she's just a dog. Poppy, listen to me. I know you've been frustrated by the past wardrobe choices. The thong was definitely a bad idea. So were the platform boots. But this jersey was special ordered for you, Poppy Perlman, from RoyalRetros.com. It was made with the finest materials and symbolizes a glorious period in American sport. Now, will you please go into the bitch's fitting room and try it on? That was amazing. Finally, your tuition dollars pay off. If some uh, 20-year-old kid at Baylor or UT or wherever says, you know, here's the thing. I really want to be a sports writer. I love sports. Should I do this? Should I pursue this career? In 2022, are you saying yes? Are you saying no? What are you saying? Jeff, I get this all the time because I try never to turn down people that need advice. I've got two calling me this week, and I tell them, first of all, you need to understand the pitfalls. You need to understand, yes, newspapers going out of business. More will go out of business. They've downsized, but they all have websites. There's a lot of opportunities out there on websites. 
And I tell them, if you know the obstacles you'll have to overcome, dive in. It's a great job. It's been fantastic. One reason I stayed at the Chronicle almost 47 years through 10 sports editors, I got treated like royalty. I was able during a, think about this, during an eight-year period from when the Oilers moved to Nashville and I started covering the Texans in 05, I didn't want to cover a loser at first. I went anywhere I wanted. I spent whatever I wanted, wrote as much as I wanted. I never worried about losing my job because every Monday, Chronicle would have two open pages devoted to the NFL, including a big story that I would write, taking an angle in some city. And because I love Nashville, I tried to spend as much time as I could up there, especially 99, when they went to the Super Bowl. So I had a fantastic job until our sport, sports editor needed to hire an assistant sports editor and a beat writer wanted that job. So they asked me if I'd do it one year. And I said, yeah, I guess so. They're going to be good. And they were 2-14. and 14. And then kind of the bottom fell out. And they said, you're going to have to uh, stay on the beat. I said, okay, and I, and I did. And, uh, but I'd say yes, and I'd say try to be versatile. I've been fortunate to do radio since 76. I've been doing regular shows in Houston since 85. I try never to turn anybody down. I prefer radio or podcasts because I've got the looks and the body of a radio guy, not a TV guy. But I'll do that, too. And I've been blessed that people have given me platforms to give my opinion. And so I would say yes. And I remember I took a, a speech class at Baylor, took a drama class because I thought maybe it helped me be in front of people. And I didn't ever get a chance to do that until uh, I came to the Chronicle. And can I tell you a quick story about my first radio appearance? Please, please. 1976, first road trip with the Houston Arrows. And, um, the voice of the arrows, Jerry Trippiano, who went on to be the voice of the Red Sox for 14 years. We were in Quebec City, La Coliseum, this old barn that uh, they wouldn't build a new arena. So they moved to Denver, became the Avalanche. But I was there and I'd never been to Canada, never been anywhere other than the building in Houston for one game. And Jerry asked me, he said, Would you like to go on the radio between periods? I said, I've never been on radio. He said, It's all right. It'll be easy. I'll ask you a few easy questions. I said, well, don't ask me anything about hockey. He said, why not? I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, how'd you get this job? I said, it's a long story. He said, okay, I'll keep it simple. And it was hard to hear in there. And I could hear him doing some commercials. But I'm looking around the arena. And as soon as I got in there, Jeff, I was really impressed with the way the usherettes at every exit would stand at attention with both arms behind their back and they were wearing, wearing tight red sweaters, tight red skirts, and red Jackie Kennedy pillbox hats. And I, and I just was mesmerized at their outfits. And so I see Jerry put a microphone in front of my face, and I'm waiting for the headset so I can hear him. And I hear him say, what do you think about your first trip to La Coliseum? And I said, man, I can't believe all the women got such big tits. And I hear him go, raising his voice and going, you can take the boy out of Waco, but you can't take Waco out of the boy. We're going to go to break and get to the bottom of this. We'll be back if the FCC allows us. And then he takes his headphones off, throws them down. He says, you can't talk like that on the radio. I said, I know I can't talk like that. He said, well, why did you? I said, I didn't know we were on the air. What are you doing with that thing you're doing with that microphone? I said, I was waiting for a headset. He said, how do you wear a headset to communicate with a producer back in studio? Now, do you think if we come back on that you can do an interview without talking like that? And I said, of course. So he put me back on. It was short questions, short interview. And I thought my career was over. But then Jerry Truppiano gave me a second chance, a third chance. He's the one that hired me full time to do a weekly show. And so I owe so much to him. But I thought my radio career was done. That is awesome. Wait, what's the biggest, um, what's the biggest print mistake you've made in your career? Do you have one where you're like, uh, I got a great story on that. Uh, after the, the Oilers lost at Oakland the day after that story we talked about earlier with Dale Robertson and Dan Pastorini, they got beat. Kenny Stabler had a terrible game. And so I heard after that, that Pastorini had been up partying all night 
and um, and he was hungover, which that, that Stabler had been up partying all night, and he was hungover when he came in, and he just, you know, he spit the bit. He had a terrible game. Raiders won, went on to win the Super Bowl. So I I had it from what I thought was a good source. Stabler had gone back to Gulf, Gulf Shores, Louisiana. I mean, Miss Alabama, the Redneck Riviera. And I tried to call him, left a couple of messages, the number I had, didn't get it. So I wrote it. And the morning it came out, Jeff, their center, Carl Malk, who was the team leader, a gruff old crumbudgeon. And he used to jump on us no matter what we wrote. He didn't like it. Uh, my, I deviate right quick. My first road trip, he comes on the plane, and I'm sitting in an aisle seat. We rode the charter back then, and he starts screaming at me, coming down the aisle, cussing me up one side, down the other, grabs me by my shirt, trying to pull me out of my chair. Well, the seatbelt's fastened, and so he's pulling half of me out, screaming. He's going to throw me off the plane. And I, I said, you know, I'm like, why? You picked us to lose, you MF. You're not going to write on this charter when you pick us to lose. And I said, I didn't pick you to lose. I read it in the Chronicle today. And he stopped, kind of confused. He said, he said, I said, I don't predict games. I said, that was by Hal Bach from the AP. He looks around and said, where's that SOB? I'll throw his ass off air. And I tried to explain he was in New York and it was syndicated. And Bum Phillips comes up, taps him on the shoulder, says, Mark, shut the bleep up, sit down, and save it for Lambert. And they got beat. And after the game, I'm walking down the aisle. He's in an aisle seat. He raises one eye looking up at me, just waiting to see if I smarted off to him. And I was smart enough not to do it. So back to Stabler. That story comes out that he'd been partying all night. He calls me. He said, I'm a roommate with Snake. Bum had me room with him before games. He was in his bed asleep. He did not go out. I'm going to tell Snake to sue you, sue the Chronicle, sue the Chronicle's owner, the Jesse Jones Foundation. He called people at the Chronicle and told them that story. And the next day, they ran a correction. Didn't call me about it. I mean, knock on wood, the only correction I've ever had. And I was embarrassed to have gotten that information wrong. And I called my source and I'm just telling you what happened. So I was humiliated. And uh, years later, Mark was coaching the offensive line, I think at Buffalo. And he and I had developed a good relationship when he quit playing. So Stabler came through Houston promoting a book and I went down to interview it. And I told him, I said, hey man, I, I forgot to apologize to you for something I wrote about you after the 1980 wildcard game. He said, what's that? And I told him and he gets his big old grin and he laughs. He said, mock every night before a game, I'd be in bed. And then when he would go to sleep and start snoring, a tornado wouldn't wake him up. And I'd get up and go out and start partying. And then right about four, six o'clock when they got us up, I could come back and get wow. in bed. And I'd be there when the wake up call came and he told me that story. First thing I did was call a couple of my former bosses that had run that correction. And then I called Mark. And to this day, he doesn't believe it. He thinks I made it up. That's amazing. Um, wait, I have two more for you. I'm interested. In your career, okay, you've flown a million times. Have you ever thought you were going to die in a plane crash? That's a great question, Jeff, because when we were flying in some really – bad planes with the arrows and I'd only been on one and I didn't know what turbulence was. The first time we hit it, I'm like, Oh my God, we're going to crash. And I look around, I see everybody else not paying much attention to it. And when we would hit bad turbulence, I would look at Gordy out. Gordy sat on an aisle seat. He had granny glasses on the end of his nose and he would work crossword puzzles. And we had some bad turbulence and other players would be squeezing the seats, squeezing armrests, Maybe even kind of like, ah, ah we're going to die. I'd look at Gordy. And if he's working that crossword puzzle, I felt calm. I didn't worry about it. And one time we had to take this little crummy charter from Quebec City to Montreal to catch a commercial flight. And that was the worst turbulence I've ever seen. A couple of players were just screaming. I'm like, yeah, right. We're not going down. I turn around. I look at Gordy. want to see him working that crossword puzzle. 
Instead, his glasses had fallen in his lap. He was squeezing the armrest so bad, they almost collapsed. And then he crossed himself. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to die. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you a totally not of unafraid flyer? hundred percent. I'm not. And uh, I just I've done it so much. One of the things I do really is I sleep a lot on flights. And uh, because the only time I can sleep or don't have to worry about the phone and I never turn it on now, like a lot of people. And so when we hit turbulence, if I'm awake, I just close my eyes and fall asleep. Like I'm being rocked to sleep. Like if I'm on a boat or a ship and it starts rocking, my wife starts throwing up and I go to sleep. Is there any part of you, obviously you're still going to be working. You're still going to be doing stuff like um, the modern era of journalism. Again, you always have a cell phone near you. Twitter, you know, a million different out, outputs and outlets and et cetera. Is there any part of you here? You sit 70 retiring from the newspaper. We are just like to hell with all of this. I'm getting off Twitter. I'm getting, I'm going to go back to a flip phone. I'm just going to disconnect. I'm not going to pay attention. And I'm, I'm to hell with this era of nonsense. I'm just going to be me. Jeff, my wife and I have a place 15 minutes South of Annapolis, right on the water that was in our family that we uh, have redone. It's got a big porch about 10 yards from the water. And I sit out on that porch drinking Natty Bow beer, National Bohemian, which is in Baltimore in the Maryland. And I love it. And I'm looking out at the water and I've thought about that. But what I use my cell phone for is to read stories around the country, listen to podcasts, watch videos. I don't read the paper like I should. I still take it out of guilt. But I spend too much time keeping up with what's going on in the world on my cell phone. I did think about that. I've known since last offseason I was going to retire. And I thought about what if I dust off my old answering machine or go see if they still sell answering machines and making people, if they need to talk to me, leave a voicemail. But I'm just too attached to it. I've had people tell me, writers, they go on vacation for a week and they get off Twitter. I don't think so because I like keeping up with the news and people's opinions, even if I disagree on the cell phone. So I will never uh, I will never abandon it because I rely on it too much. Now, one thing I don't do, I don't look at it when I'm at dinner in my, with my wife. I don't like if I am, I have a friend that has great seats to the Astros right by an old plate. He invites me two or three times a year. We're on the second row. As soon as I sit, friends start texting me. I never look at that phone when the game's going because when I watch them, it drives me crazy to see people while they're pitching and hitting, looking at their cell phones. I'm thinking, why in the hell are you there sitting in those great seats when you're not paying attention? So there are certain times I don't do it. I never look at it in movies. I've got friends that look at it and the lights on during movies and it drives me crazy, but it's just become too valuable of a resource to abandon it. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you the last thing. You've mentioned a few, but give me your best. The best confrontation you've had in an athlete in your with an athlete in your career. Can I use a coach? Sure. 1988, uh, Jerry Glanville was in his third year as the Oilers coach. And Jerry was volatile and he was a tough guy from 1950s, wore all black, and he was fun to cover. The teams were good, and Jerry was a story a minute. Uh, from leaving tickets for Elvis at a preseason game in Memphis to being on crutches and claiming a snake bit him when he actually stepped on a nail. And he said that snake was named John McLean or Ed Fowler. That's our columnist. And it was something new every day. Uh, one time he chomped on a dog biscuit before they played Cleveland in the playoffs and he had to wear a bulletproof vest and he had to have a policeman outside of his door and a police escort. None of the coaches or players would stand by him because they're afraid he's going to get shot because the, the AP in Northeastern Ohio media had picked up that picture and thought he was insulting the dogs. So he was a fun guy. But in 1988, First game of the year they played in Indianapolis and Warren Moon uh, suffered a fractured scapula. And their backup quarterback was Cody Carlson in his second season. And then they had a guy, Brent Peace, 
who had quarterbacked them to a two and one record during the strike of 87. And Glanville had a soft spot for him. June Jones was the quarterback coach and basically the coordinator without the title. Glanville didn't want coordinators because he wanted everybody to think he was doing everything. So the next morning I talked to June Jones and said Cody Carlson would replace Warren and said good things about him. And then when Jerry came in to meet with the media, he said he hadn't decided. So I wrote a story the next day and I knew this would infuriate Glanville. You could call him names. You could rip him up. But if you acted like he didn't know football, he went ballistic. So I wrote, June Jones, who's forgotten more about offense than Coach Jerry Glanville will ever know, comma, uh, disclosed Cody Carlson will replace Warren Moon until he returns from the fractured scapula. Uh, Glanville sounded confused about the starting quarterback, blah, blah, blah. Now, I did that, and I knew it'd make him mad. I come into their old facility. It's a long hallway from the front doors. At the end is coaching dressing room. On the right is the players' locker room. On the left is the weight room. And I come in, and June Jones, and June and I have talked about this a lot because we're good friends now. June's standing there talking to me. Jerry comes down that hallway. He is going ballistic, screaming and yelling at me. And he gets up there, and he's screaming and yelling, spits flying. And June doesn't move. And he told me later, I was standing there in case he – Y'all got in a fight. And Jerry told me, I'm going to punch your lights out. And he winds up to hit me, and I didn't flinch. And June asked me later, he said, I can't believe you didn't flinch. I said, I was calculating how much of his salary I was going to get when I sued him. So he kicked me out of the building. And that night, uh, Lad Hers, the general manager, called me. And he said, I heard you and Jerry had a ruckus today. I said, whatever. And so I didn't write about it. And I didn't say anything to anybody about it. He said, well, we had Jerry down here. And he said he did it because you were being critical of me and Bud. And I started laughing. And I'll never forget, he started laughing. He said, we know that's not the case. I said, whatever Jerry says is fine with me. And it was another time when uh, it was off season. And I had written right after the season, there's nothing wrong with the Oilers that a, that a year-long case of laryngitis, that Jerry Glanville get a year-long year case of laryngitis wouldn't solve. And his assistant, Linda, called me, said, Coach wants to see you in his office. I said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And so I go there. She calls him. I go in. There's two doors in his old office. And I go in, and he locks one door with a key, and he goes over and locks the other one, goes behind his desk, and he says, I am finally going to kick your ass, starts calling me every name. And I thought, you know what? It's just us. I'm going to get my first fight since high school. So I took my glasses off, put them on his desk. I was carrying a little shoulder bag, put them on his desk. He comes around in front of the desk, clenching his fist. I clench mine, and he's cussing like crazy. And he goes back around to the other side, and he starts opening drawers and slamming them. I said, what are you doing? I'm looking for an affidavit. You're going to sign it and say you're not going to sue me when I kick your ass. And I said, you keep affidavits in there for occasions like this? You smart ass. And he slams it on his thumb. And I knew it hurt. And it hurt me. And he pulls it out. He didn't want to show it. And I and he says, get your ass out of here. So he can't get the door undone because he's right-handed. And it was his right thumb. So I said, here, give me the key. So I unlocked the door and like a cartoon, opened the door. And there's all the assistant coaches. Wow. And, uh, and they didn't come falling into the room, the secretaries. But they were all standing there listening. So he kicked me out of the building. And uh it was hilarious. And one other story in 89, uh, Jerry Glanville had a new DB coach. Guy never said anything. He, I knew he was a good coach because the players talked about how tough he was on him. And the assistant GM, Mike Holovac, used to like to go into the position meetings. And he told me how this new defensive back coach knew what he was doing and he was demanding and he wouldn't take anything off the players. And uh, so after a certain game, this coach did not talk to anybody. I seen by the water cooler in the locker room and his DBs had had a terrible game. And I went over and uh, I'm sorry, it's 88. And I, and I said, Hey Nick, you got a minute? 
That's the first time I talked to Nick Saban. So we're sitting there talking by the water cooler. Glanville comes in, starts screaming again, get away from him, you cop bleeper. Get away. Don't talk to that mother. And he's walking over there. Right as he gets close to us, I threw my hand out there and said, Jerry, stop. You shouldn't talk to Nick like that. I'm not talking to Nick. Get your ass out of here. So I called Saban that night, and I said, I hope I didn't get you any trouble. He said, don't worry about it. Wow. If you uh, if you saw Jerry Glanville today, could you laugh about these stories? Uh, I haven't seen Jerry in years. And uh, I saw him um, at a Super Bowl like 25 years ago, and we talked not about those stories, but I would be – he lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm in Nashville quite a bit, and I do a weekly show in Knoxville. And uh, I'd love to talk to him because there were so many great times, wild and crazy times, when he was the head coach, and he turned around that franchise after six consecutive losing seasons, and he went to the playoffs in 87, 88, and 89. Then they let Adams let his contract expire and hired Jack Pardee. But I've never been around a coach who was more fun to cover winning, but every day was controversy. You feel Forrest Gump. Every day with Glamble's like a box of chocolates. You never knew what you're going to get. I um I wrote a biography of Brett Favre and I um I he played his rookie year under Glanville in Atlanta. Oh yeah. I met with, I met with the ownership of the Falcons after interviewing in Glanville and I told them some of the things. And he said, uh, when a guy goes, when you talk to Glanville, you can believe forty percent of a hundred percent of what he says. Forty percent, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's more than I would have more than I would have given him. Can I tell you one more story? Please. Do we have time for one more? Sure. People have asked me what was my most memorable uh, thing I've done in my career. And I spent a day with George Hallis in his office in Chicago. Day before I spent an afternoon with Bill Vack at the barge room at Kaminsky Park with the White Sox on the road with him regaling me of stories about Al Capone and Don, John Dillinger when he was a kid and his dad and the Cubs. I spent an afternoon with Bobby Lane in Lubbock. And, but the one that, that is the most memorable of me is also the longest story I ever wrote. 1998, Jeff, I noticed Don Hudson died. Great Green Bay receiver. And I looked at the list of a Hall of Famers from that original class of 63 and saw Slingin' Sammy Ball was the only survivor. And I knew he lived in West Texas on a ranch outside a little town called, town called Rotan at the base of the Double Mountains on the Texas map. If you get a big one, you'll see the Double Mountains. So I had a friend here named Cowboy Bill Lamza who told me one time he played dominoes with Sammy Ball. And Sammy was a fanatical domino player. And he lived out in the middle of nowhere, but if somebody stopped at his gate and told him to play dominoes, he'd invite him in. So I asked Bill, will you see if Sammy Ball will do an interview with me and the Chronicle will pay for you and we'll fly out there. So they set it up. We flew to Lubbock, rented a car, drove to his ranch a few hours away, and Sammy cussed like crazy. And as soon as we pulled up, he comes out on his porch, and he was 85 then. And he and Bill start cussing at each other. They go in about how each other's going to kick the other's ass and dominoes. And he's got this table set up and they start playing. And I turn on the tape recorder and he regales me the most unbelievable stories about his career, about, you know, little wet leather helmets with the Redskins, uh, uh, no face mask. And when he played, there was a rule that until the whistle blew, you could hit the quarterback. So if he threw a short pass, say, on the 25, and the, and the receiver was weaving his way down the field, Sammy had to run the other direction to keep away from the linemen who were trying to get him out of the game. Wow. And he told me a story about in the early 40s, they're playing at, I guess, old Griffith Stadium. Can't remember if it was there or RFK. And during the game, they would hear these announcements, and they're focused on the game. And they see people getting up and leaving, and they're on the bench wondering why these people are leaving. And after the game, the owner, George Preston Marshall, came in and told them Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, and they were calling officers out of the stadium 
to report for duty, but they didn't want the players to know it till the game was over. And his best stories, other than winning a championship, can you imagine this today? If, say, Stan Kroenke asked his team to do this, they would win a championship and then have to barnstorm across the South playing games against semi-pro teams, college players, so the owner could make more money. And he hurt his shoulder before he went to the St. Louis Cardinals minor league teams. He was a great baseball player. His nickname, Slinging Sammy Ball, came from baseball. When he was at TCU throwing the ball from third to first, and a sports writer gave it to him. He never signed a ball slinging Sammy Ball because he said, if I sign Sam Ball, I can sign twice as many balls uh, as, as I would if I did what people wanted. People sent him stuff to be signed from all over the world. They would go slinging Sammy Ball, Rotan, Texas. No zip code, no address, but everybody in town at the post office knew where he was. He'd been on that ranch since the late 30s. So he would stack up stuff in a corner, and every two weeks, a daughter-in-law would come over, line up card tables, dining room, kitchen table, lay it all out. He'd sign it. She'd send it back. And they never let anything go unsigned. And so the best stories he told me when he was in the minors with the Cardinals, he was there with guys that going to be known as the gas house gang. And he talked about the wild times, but it was a player for another team that was the most memorable. It was a really young right fielder. He thought he was 17. And this kid, he said, that son of a bitch, because he cussed like crazy, that son of a bitch, we wanted to kick his ass. When the when when his pitcher would wind up, he would turn his back to the hitter and just dare us to hit it out there. Or he'd do jumping jacks, or he would sit on the ground, or he would put his glove in his back pocket. And I asked the manager one time, I said, somebody's going to kick that son of a bitch's ass. And why do you let him get away with that? And Ball said the guy would hit the ball so hard he could hear a plank coming out of the fence before he could turn from third base to see it. Said he had line drives he could hang clothes on. And he asked that manager, why do you let him get away with this? And the manager said, because the guys with the big club say, leave him alone. He's going to make us a lot of money someday. And I said, did that guy go and make anything out of himself? He started laughing, said, you tell me if Ted Williams made something out of himself. Wow. And I never heard stories like that about Ted Williams when he was young. But spending that time with him was unbelievable. And when we left, I was out with him on his front porch. He had, We spent the night, and he made us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the road back to Lubbock. And I'm standing out there with him, and I said, Sammy, why do you live out here by yourself so far away? Why not move to Fort Worth? or Sweetwater, where he would drive 45 minutes to play golf on weekdays. He said, because I live out here, because anytime I got to take a piss, I come right out here on my porch, and I take a piss, and I don't have to worry about anybody seeing me. In fact, I got to take one right now. Care to join me? And I did. And I'm pretty sure nobody else in the media ever took a leak with Sammy Ball off his porch in West Texas. I just want you to know, if anyone calls me one day and says, what do we put on John's tombstone? It's done. We got it. I took stone. a leak with Sammy Ball. Done. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Um, mind if I ask you one more question real quick? Of course. You um, you covered, I meant to ask you about this. You covered, you were covering the Oilers in 1983 when a really tragic story happened, which is the suicide of Jeff Alm, who... Uh, who played with that, played uh, four seasons with the Oilers, Notre Dame guy. Um, what is it like to cover something like that as opposed to the joy and weirdness of sports? That was 1993. That was the most controversial, tumultuous season in the history of the NFL. And I've told people for decades, if you want to put your controversial and tumultuous season up against mine, mine will trump you. They did one on the NFL network for an hour. could have been three hours. And that season, they were coming off that Buffalo choke job, 35-3, to blown lead uh, after the 92 season, and they had hired Buddy Ryan. Buddy created all kind of controversy before he ever got here because he didn't like to run and shoot, called it the chuck and duck. So that put offensive coordinator Kevin Gilbride 
uh, on the def- on the defensive. And uh, so there was so much controversy that season. It began with Buddy, players ripping Buddy, offensive players ripping him, defensive players ripping the offense. They started uh, one in four. Warren Moon got benched. They went to New England. Cody Carlson was starting quarterback. And halfway through that game, I got a tip. Look at left tackle. And I'm looking down there. It was a backup. And I'm like, okay, where's David Williams? And I start checking. David didn't make the trip. Well, he got hurt. No, his wife, Debbie's having a baby and he wouldn't come. And I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. So they came back and won when Carlson got hurt. Moon came off the bench, only time Moon's ever been benched. And he led them to a victory, never lost another game till the playoffs in the divisional round against the Chiefs. But after the game, offensive line coach Bob Young, who was about as old school as you could get, played 17 seasons in the NFL, and I pulled him around outside the building. And I said, Bob, where where's David Williams? And he ripped David. He said, oh, he had to be home, be there for the birth of his kid. Had to be like you're going to war. And you say, Son, honey, I can't go to war. I'm going to stay here where my kid's being born. And I'm like, Pooh, Bob, you're creating a huge controversy. And, and he did. And it got so bad for Bob, the vice president ripped him in a speech. And all the talk shows, not sports, but news, tried to get David Williams, uh, his wife, Debbie, and his son, Scott, to get them on TV. Connie Chung won. They went on there, made the Bob Young look awful, and turned out the Oilers had a charter ready to go for when the baby was born and fly him up there, but David wouldn't do it. He wanted to stay there with his wife and kid. Now, of course, all players do that, uh, have the right to do that, but it was a huge story. We call it Baby Gate. And then uh, I get a call in the middle of the night by my managing editor, and he said, have you heard what happened? I said, what happened with who, with the Oilers? I said, what happened? Well, our police reporters say Jeff Ong killed himself uh, at on the overpass at uh, 610 and 59. And I'm like, what do you mean he killed himself? He said, here's what we know. So that was on a Monday night. So Tuesday, the team was off. But the media is local, national, uh, TV shows that didn't have anything to do with sports came there. Trucks were set up everywhere. And it turned out Jeff Hahn was a big drinker, big partier, had guns, had a little sawed off shotgun he kept under his seat. And he had his best friend, Sean, from Illinois, who's in town. They'd been at old San Francisco Steakhouse getting drunk. And so Jeff, who drove like a maniac anyway, was making his turn on the overpass and he slammed the driver's side door into the, the, the cement wall. And Sean, who was real small, goes flying out the open window and goes like three levels down and dies. And then Jeff pulls over. He calls 911. We've all heard this a million times. He's trying to say what happened. He's crying. You hear he looks over. He, Sean's dead. You he goes over and gets his sawed-off shotgun under his uh, seat, shoots a couple of shots off, and then you hear some kind of rustling around. And then you hear one more shot, nothing. He had sat down and next to the barrier, leaned up against it, put it in his mouth, and blown his brains out. So that was a huge story, and they played at Pittsburgh the next week. But they brought in, they brought in counselors. They brought in a preacher. They did everything they could to help the players deal with it. And uh, it dwarfed the game, of course. But they went to Three River Stadium and they won. And uh, they never lost another game uh, since early in the season to the Chargers. But that was hanging over their heads all year. And that was the last game against the Jets at halftime. Oilers were real good. Defense was great. Defense had knocked out 11 quarterbacks that season, and they're playing the Jets and Boomer sides and taking snaps and basically falling on the ground. So right before halftime, Jeff, I'm about to get up and go in the line to get a hot dog. I hear a guy by the TV go, hey, you guys may want to wait. 
Chris Berman just said before they went to the break, he just saw something he'd never seen. So we all go over and we crowd around that TV. They come back and Berman says, we're going to show you something that happened on the sideline we've never seen before. We don't know why. We'll get to the bottom of it. And they showed Buddy Ryan throwing a punch at Kevin Gilbride. So you had the controversy of Buddy before the season, preseason, Warren Moon being benched. In that Warren Moon game and the Baby Gate game, there was an incident on the sideline where receiver Haywood Jeffries threw Gatorade on offensive coordinator Kevin Gilbride because he was mad. Now, ordinarily, that'd be a huge story, but it got buried in, in a note. And so that, and then, of course, Jeff Alm, and then uh, Buddy and Kevin, I've never seen a season like it. They finished 12-4, and four, and then they lost to Joe Montana's last miracle in the largest crowd in Astrodome history in the divisional round. I just want to say, I barely remember where I leave my car keys. Your memory is insane. It is off the charts insane. It's ridiculous. Do you know where your car keys are right now? Uh, yeah, because I put them in the same basket every day. But that's all. My, my mother said when I was a kid, you can't remember anything from school. But if you read Sport Magazine or the Sporting News or Sports Illustrated, you remember every word. I said, because those are fun to read. I hate school. Yeah, I feel like um, many of us in the profession have the exact same thing where I could tell you that Freeman McNeil wore number 24 for the Jets, went to UCLA, <laughs> was six foot and 100. But I can't tell you where my keys are or what time an appointment is. It's a weird affliction that we suffer from. Yeah, I don't think it's too much of an affliction because that memory has helped us in a lot of ways in our profession. You're one of the top authors in the country. I'm an old dinosaur who's still talking to for money which to me has always been like stealing yeah. and uh and we we keep going on and i wish you a happy 50th birthday and let me tell you uh it's not all uh downhill after that you know i'd say I've, i'm 70 jeff and i look 80 and i feel 40 <laughs> that's awesome well john i uh, i appreciate you doing this i wish you uh, i congratulate you on an amazing career I feel like you're not going anywhere. I know it's a retirement, but you're not really going anywhere. I'll turn on Twitter and there you'll be. And um, thank you so much for doing this. I've loved this episode. Love. Jeff, it is my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on again. Anytime you want to do it, let me know. Good luck with your books. And uh, I do appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, John McLean, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging the Egg. And follow John on Twitter at McLean underscore on underscore NFL. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.